Not all of my slides are in the handout. And my excuse is that I had this adorable baby 11 weeks ago. So I've been a little busy. Thank you. And I'm a little tired, so if I fall asleep standing up, if someone just makes the sound of a crying baby, I'll wake right up. Um, I usually give really bad scores to lecturers who don't have all their slides in, um, so cut me a little bit of a break, but that is my general rule, but most of these are in there. So we're going to talk about contracts, and the first thing anybody wants to talk about when they're talking about employment and contracts is compensation, compensation, compensation. And we have to realize, although compensation is important, it's not the only thing that needs to be in your contract to fully protect you. Everybody needs to have a contract with their employer. There are rare situations where it actually behooves you to not have a contract. That'll be one out of every 500 situations. The other 499 people who don't have a contract are end up, they're gonna be screwed. I do have a conflict of interest. I have a website, paprofession.com, that is a profit website that deals with business end of PAs, um, as well as a private consulting company. So some of my lecture, um, that, that's my conflict of interest. The most important message I, I want to tell people is that negotiations are tough. It took me three months to negotiate my last contract with my employer. It was all I could talk about with my friends. It woke me up in the middle of the night. It gave me heartburn, and I'm an expert on it, and people pay me to help them. And it still was difficult for me to do as well. You actually have to learn how to negotiate your contract, what needs to be in it, and how to be a good negotiator. That's really point three. Most people are not great born negotiators. Some are. Some could, you know, convince you to give them the shirt off your back, and that's what you want to do. They're such good negotiators. For the most part, negotiation is a skill. Go to Barnes & Noble one day with coffee and, and look in the career development section about negotiations. It's a skill that needs to be learned, that needs to be practiced. It really, PA school provides us poorly for both negotiation and for actual contracts. So it's just something that now, if you want to have a good employment contract and you want to be paid fairly, you need to make it important to you to learn. So why, why do we need a written contract? Well, you know what? Verbal agreements are great. I love the days of it was a handshake and a how you do, but they don't hold up in a court of law. Sadly, disagreements occur, practices are sold. Sold to another employer who's your boss who now pulls the rug out from underneath you and says you're going to this satellite clinic and there's no more bonus and I'm cutting your pay. Or they're sold to hospital systems that now say, oh, this hospital system's policy is we only employ nurse practitioners. Or we decided mid-levels are not allowed to do biopsies on their own. Employers also sadly pass away. They also lose their licenses. You need a contract to protect you in those situations. The only exception to not having a contract is if you accept a new position and you guys want to start ASAP, especially if you're just going to spend some time shadowing, you could get a letter of intent, which is a letter from the practice spelling out the key points, what you're going to be paid, where you're going to go, how many days later you're going to be presented with a contract, you know, 60 days from now. If you just show up and start and they say, we'll get you a contract eventually, they're going to think you're vested in the practice already and unlikely to leave. They now have the negotiating power. 
So the only acceptable way to start without a contract is a letter of intent and for a short, well-defined time, and most of those terms should be in that letter of intent. It is advisable to hire a lawyer to look at any contract that you plan to sign. And ideally, they should be familiar with health care law in your state, because it does vary state to state, as well as physician assistance in particular. A great way to find a lawyer locally is to ask other PAs who they've used, go on the forum, and call your state PA society. And usually, they have a lawyer that they've dealt with. You know, if you're in Georgia, call the Georgia Academy of PAs. Whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you have to look at a contract with a pessimistic eye. And I know it's great, it's like starting a relationship. You know, you're in love with this dermatologist and everything's gonna be great, you're gonna be there forever, and you have tons of patients, make lots of money, the world is rosy. You need to put on this pessimistic pair of glasses and ask, what if? What if this practice is sold? What if this employer turns out to be a jerk? What if he remarries and his wife becomes the office manager from hell? What if, what if, what if? And what if it's just not a good fit? And you need to read every line of that contract and ask those what ifs. If you don't understand a line in a contract, don't sign it. Say, I don't understand what this paragraph means. Can you explain it to me? And if you get an answer, oh, which is very simply saying that you know you won't give practice secrets to other practices, that's all it's really saying. Then your response would be, good, I need to reword it to say what you just said verbally. So don't sign something you don't understand. Let's talk about some key components of your contract. One of the most important points that every contract needs to state is that it's a set time period. Do not sign a contract that renews forever. Do not sign a contract that has no end date. Why? If you have a contract that renews forever, most of us are not going to be self-motivated enough to say, hey, it's contract time, I'm nervous, but you know, I need to broach it. And your employer is really not that motivated to negotiate with you because they just want your contract to renew. I also think that people who just let their contract renew endlessly really says to your employer, I'm pretty apathetic, I'm not real motivated, I'm not a leader, I'm not a leader in this practice, I don't really have a whole lot of self-respect, just give me what you think is appropriate. Obviously, you know, nobody has that, or I hope you don't have that opinion of yourself. So you need to have a term on your contract. For a first year, new employer, I would say absolutely no longer than one year. If you're at that practice, you know you like it, a second contract could be three years. I'd say five years at the most if you've been there for a while. The only exception to the rule is those of us that are out there getting strict percentages of collections and have hit the glass ceiling, um, you may decide that your contract, you're, not, you're going to have it renewed. But I'm talking, those are the people that should be way off the salary survey high, high percentages of collections. I don't think that's too many of us right now. Don't ever expect an employer to come to you when your contract is over. Think about it. Why would they? You know you're good. I mean, the whole point of a contract is you're going to want more. So unless you have a really giving employer, which maybe some of, of us do, chances are they're not going to come to you. Hey, Abby, I see your contract's up. Let's talk about it so I can give you more money on vacation days. It's just not going to happen. And they're busy. I know my doctors aren't sitting there looking and remembering when my contract is up. So it's up to us to set a time period in the contract and then to reinitiate negotiations. And we'll talk about a good time frame for that at the end. 
But like I said, first year, only one year. It also should state that if you're employed for less than a year, you do not have to pay back bonuses, any type of vacation time, any malpractice insurance. The problem is when a lot of us leave, they still owe us some money. They owe us a check or they owe us a bonus. And if it doesn't state that I'm not responsible for paying you back half my malpractice insurance because I quit halfway through the year, you're going to get your last check minus $1,000 for your insurance. So keep in mind, if it's not in there and they're going to owe you money at the end, they can take it out and, and keep what they want of that unless you state that you don't have to pay for these things if employment is terminated earlier than the contract says. You absolutely should designate your duties. And this can be pretty broad. Even sentences like, will not be restricted to the types of patients or procedures you'll perform. I think this really comes into play a lot of practices where the new young doctor comes in and, and they want to do all the cosmetic and all the Botox or they don't understand why you're doing all these procedures. They want to do all the excisions to get that reimbursement for that code. So you very well may want to state what type of patients you're going to see, what duties you're going to do. How many hours a week you're going to work? Is it ever going to include evenings and weekends? Absolutely, it should state what office you will go to. You may start there, and there may only be one office, and then all of a sudden they're collecting all these satellite offices and telling you, yeah, you have to drive an hour and a half on Wednesdays, and no, your mileage not not reimbursed. You, you obviously don't want that, and you want to be able to negotiate that. Hey, if you want me to go to the satellite office, then I need this in exchange. So even if there's one office, and they say, well, you know, why does it need to state this? We only have one site. You'll say, oh, good, then it's easy. Let's just put the one site in there. Will you do hospital consults, nursing home rounds, and any restrictions on moonlighting? If they don't bring it up, then you shouldn't bring it up. If you want to do evenings in the ER, go for it. But just be aware if they put moonlighting, you may want to keep up your primary care skills and go to an ER or go to a free family practice clinic once a month. So you need to address that if it's in there. It should go over your benefits. So how many vacation days, and I put some averages, although we're going to talk about averages in a second. Sick time, CME time, and CME reimbursement. I don't understand how practices do not provide their PAs with CME reimbursement because it's a direct investment in the practice. Having days off and having CME money directly contribute to your professional development. And for a, an office or an administrator or who, your employer who doesn't offer CME reimbursement, your first question should be, don't you want me to be the best medical provider with cutting edge knowledge who can treat my patients, your patients, with the latest and greatest best medicine out there? And of course, they'll say yes. You'll say, I need to continue my education and be a lifelong learner in order to do that. I need to go to medical conferences, and you need to support me in my effort to be the best medical provider that I can be. I've also seen some contracts recently that actually state uh, what costs can be covered. Um, I had a, a client whose practice said that meals and taxis weren't reimbursable. And uh, you know, I kind of encouraged her to say, chances are she wouldn't be having a $25 steak if she was home on a Saturday night. And she probably wouldn't be taking taxi cab rides if she was home, not at a CME conference. So I think all of those are uh, expenses that should be covered as part of your CME fund. 
Some people prefer to have a set dollar amount, that this is your dollar amount, use it wisely. Some people prefer to say a set number of conferences, one or two conferences, and, and just all the expenses that go along with it. Um, I've also seen some contracts recently that state that if the CME money isn't used for conferences, it can be used for books and medical equipment, a dermatoscope, a textbook. If that's the case, make sure you put a line in there that, that those are your property then. So if you have a book or dermatoscope that's bought out of this fund, it is your property, not the practices, or else you have to leave it when you go. It should state your licensure fees are covered by the practice and really understand the cost here, at least in Pennsylvania, the cost for a PA license is much less than a physician license. Um, and basically, what's covered for the physicians at the practice should be covered for, for the PA at the practice. So if the physician's medical license is covered, so should yours. If they have hospital privileges, so should yours. You should state in your health insurance whether it's going to be covered 100% for you or if you're going to have to contribute to your health insurance and what access your dependents have to the plan. Will they cover your dependents? Will they pay part of your dependents? Um, professional dues, you should absolutely put, you know, when your employer pays your SDPA dues, they get to take it off their taxes as a business expense. We're obviously, and we're paying our $100, we don't have that ability to take that off our taxes. So it really behooves the practice to pay for our professional dues, especially if they're paying for the physician dues. And really give them the examples. To be a fellow in the SDPA is only $100. To be a fellow in the AAD, I think last time I looked, was like $800. So when you say to them, oh, I want three professional dues covered, make sure you explain to them that's probably less than $500. Otherwise, they're thinking they're going to be spending $2,000 on your professional dues. Disability insurance, retirement benefits, these are all things that need to be spelled out in your contract. So here's two slides that are not, not in there. And it was sort of bouncing around my head, obviously, just since I was on maternity leave. I can find zero data on PAs and maternity leave, both nationally, other specialties, I can't find any information. And in reality, this is probably the one disadvantage we now have as Durham PAs, because most of us work in private practice, and private practices just don't have as good of benefits, in particular things like maternity leave, as if we were working for a big hospital system. If your employer has greater than 50 employees, they must comply with Family Medical Leave Act. All FMLA says is that your job is protected for 12 weeks, that you have to have a health care provider say that you must be off for 12 weeks. It is without pay, and all, that is, all they're saying is that your job will be secure when you come back. Um, so it's not paid, they're, they're not required to do anything with your bonus threshold, and if there's less than 50 employees, they do not have to comply with FMLA. So if you have maternity leave in your contract, like I have in mine, it should state the number of weeks that you want for maternity leave, and it should state if it's paid or unpaid, and if that changes your bonus threshold, which is usually the big sticking point. Realistically, think about the practice's point of view. You're going to be gone for 12 or 16 or 8 weeks or whatever you negotiate you feel is appropriate. There's going to be no revenue. So you're not seeing patients, so they're losing revenue because you're not there. They may be paying you, so they're losing money and no income is coming in. Increased work. They have to deal with your patients with the refills and the pathology that comes in from the day after you left. 
Additionally, you may have staff, medical assistants, that they still have to pay and still have to employ, but there's not really as much work for them to do while you're gone for those amount of weeks. And probably most importantly, there's a big fear that you won't return that you'll use this time and you'll get paid and you'll not come back or you'll come back and say, I only want to work two days a week now. So see what those fears are. Explain to them you understand the cost, but this is something you need to be a happy person who takes care of your family and pays your bill bills. And a happy person who can take care of their family will stay at this practice. So it's an interesting, complicated dance, um, but these are the things that need to be in it, and these are the things you need to realize, and it really does need to be negotiated back and forth. I'd also recommend negotiating it well before the year you're going to get pregnant. So this is great when it's theoretical and they think it's far off in the future because you probably have a little more leeway than you've been there three years, you're now 32 years old, they know you and your husband have talked about it, it's gonna feel a little bit more real. So negotiate it before you think you're gonna use it. Malpractice insurance, this is a lecture within itself and it is so scary how few of us really understand the malpractice insurance that we have or that our employers have provided for us. The sad thing is most of us don't care about it until we're getting sued and then guess what, it's too late. So your contract should state who pays for malpractice insurance with the vast majority of practices cover this for their PAs. And again, get the real numbers here. My very first employer back in the day, years and years ago, I told him I wanted a million dollar occurrence policy in, in Pennsylvania near Philadelphia. And he's, oh my God, this is gonna be $20,000. You know, I, I don't think you'll be able to find this. And I called up and I got a quote and it was $2,000. And he went, oh, why didn't you tell me it was $2,000? I wish I could get that policy. Yeah, sure, you can have that. So get on the phone, call insurance companies. You get the real numbers. There's two, um, two ways to have malpractice insurance in this world. Either you have your own policy, which I've always been a big believer in having my own policy. That means I make the decisions. So if uh, a malpractice claim is brought against me and the insurance company wants to settle, it's not my doctor who decides, it's not the malpractice insurance company who decides, it's me who decides. That malpractice policy goes to my house, so I get the bill and give it to my office manager and then I get confirmation of it getting paid. It covers me if I were to go to other offices, if I were to do volunteer work, I've always preferred to have my own policy. The other option is to be a rider on your physician's policy or the group policy, which isn't wrong. It wouldn't be wrong to do. You just have to make sure that you are given yearly verification that you are a rider on the policy and that your name is specifically mentioned on the front page or the declarations page. And here's, here's the problem. Many dermatologists, they have their own malpractice policy and their staff is considered a rider on their policy. So their nurse burns a patient in a light box and someone sues, sues the doctor and the nurse. The doctor says, the nurse is employed by me, she's staff, she's therefore a rider on my policy. And unfortunately, many doctors then say, so this must also apply to my PA. Not true. Although you may be staff, you are also a provider. And if you are not specifically mentioned, that insurance company could say, no, they're a provider, not staff. They have no malpractice coverage. 
So you, if you are a rider on your physician or group policy, your name must specifically be mentioned on the declarations page or what's also called the front page. You also should get yearly verification of your malpractice insurance. It's sad but true. I knew a PA who everything was hunky-dory. Suddenly, you know, a couple months later, said, you know, I do not have my new malpractice form. Let me call up my insurance and see if they'll send it to me. And they're like, oh, we never got your payment. She gave it to the office manager. The office manager never sent it in. How many of us here have a copy of our malpractice policy? Okay, for those who didn't raise their hand, how do you know you have malpractice right now? So it's scary. You have to protect yourself. So it should state you get a copy of your malpractice yearly. There's also two types of malpractice, claims, claims made and occurrence. Do you want me to go over that? Shaking heads? Yes, okay. Two types of malpractice insurance. Occurrence, an occurrence policy, and this is what's sold from the insurance company, an occurrence policy, means that they will cover you for a claim that happened while you had that insurance no matter how many years later someone sues you. So let's say this year I have an occurrence policy through the Gary Westbrock Insurance Company and I only have it for one year. And then I retire, I change practices, I switch malpractice carriers, I go to ER, I do whatever. I no longer have a policy with Gary's insurance company. Five years later, a patient sues me because they got hyperpigmentation after I froze a wart. Even though I no longer have that malpractice policy, or maybe any malpractice policy, maybe you know I went to work for a pharmaceutical company, because I had a policy in effect with Gary, an occurrence policy, when I saw that patient, Gary will always cover me against that policy. So five years later, I'm calling him, we're using his lawyers, he's paying out the settlement if there is one. The opposite of that is a claims made policy. So let's say with Sharon, I have Sharon company claims made policy. She's only covering me for this year and then I leave. I go to another practice, again, whatever. That same patient sues me for that hyperpigmentation of a ward. I go back to Sharon. I said, Sharon, when I saw the patient, I had this claims made policy through you. She'll go, do you still have that same exact claims made policy? And I'll go, no. And she'll go, well, then I can't help you. If you have a claims made policy and you end that policy by changing employers or just not, not having that malpractice anymore, you need to get something called tail coverage. And what tail coverage is, is it's a separate insurance policy that says, okay, we know you had claims made, we know that you're no longer buying claims made insurance from Sharon, here's another policy that will help cover you if a patient tries to sue you for the time period where you had Sharon's claim made policy. They can cover you for a year, for five years, for 10 years. It's not like it's an infinite for the rest of your life policy with claims made, or with the tail coverage. And I would say the average tail coverage for five years is about $10,000. So if you don't state in your contract that you either have to have an occurrence policy or that you have to have a claims made policy and that the practice will buy you tail coverage or that they'll buy you tail coverage if you're terminated or you've negotiated with your next employer that they're gonna cover your tail coverage, you may not be able to leave a job because you have to come up with $10,000 to buy yourself five years, five years, that's not very long, of tail coverage. And if you, anybody sees a minor in this room and something goes wrong in malpractice, they have it until after they're 18 years old. So you see a two-year-old, you say, hey, that mole is fine. 
it becomes melanoma when they're 17, you have that, you know, 18 years that you could be sued. So you need to understand your policy, you need to understand what it says, and you need to know when tail coverage is applicable. You also need to understand your coverage limits. I have clients who, when we look at their coverage, it's a good policy, it's occurrence, or it's you know claims made, and they have appropriate provisions for tail coverage. And I'll say, get a copy of your insurance, your malpractice insurance, let's look at the declarations page. And it says that they are covered for $250,000. That is not a lot. If you guys miss a melanoma, if you guys ruin that modeling career of, you know, the patient who had molluscum on her knee and she was going to be, you know, the next Toys R Us model, you're going to be sued for a lot more than $250,000. So what happens when that $250,000, let's say you have a settlement and the court says, you know, you, you owe this patient or his family a million and a half dollars. And you say, well, my, my employer only bought me $250,000 worth of coverage. They'll say, great, how much is your house worth and how much do you have in savings? And how many years do you think we have to garnish your income to pay that patient? So you need to pay attention to what that limit is, what that $250,000, a million dollars in coverage, and think about what settlements in your state are typical. Again, copies should be given to you annually, and either the limits need to be mutually agreed upon, or it should state we'll have minimum of 500,000 per occurrence, three occurrences maximum, or a million dollars per occurrence, or will be mutually agreed upon by PA and employer. Your contract should also state how and why you can be terminated. And there's two general reasons for termination, either with cause or without cause. Being terminated with cause or for cause is typically you did something wrong. You lost your license, you got kicked out of Medicare, you sexually abused a staff member, you started dating a patient, you started abusing narcotics, you did something wrong. And it should pretty much state what those egregious events are, like losing your license, um, like breaking the code of ethics, like not being able to participate in insurance companies anymore. The other option is being terminated without cause, basically no fault of your own. Both need to specify the notification time, how your compensation will be handled, how bonuses will be handled, how benefits like CME and malpractice will be handled. I'm a big fan in having contracts that are at will that you should set up this contract for both you and the doctor to allow for a peaceful parting. Either party, you or the employer, should be able to terminate the contract within 60 or 90 days. Don't force a bad situation. If you hate being there, but you signed a year contract and there's no way out, all you're gonna do is piss each other off and then as soon as you separate after that year, you're just gonna badmouth each other to the rest of the medical community. If it's not a fit, it's not a fit. Allow for you two to part peacefully. Let's talk about restrictive covenants or non-compete clause. Basically, if they don't bring this up, you definitely should not bring it up. Mom's the word. Basically, a restrictive covenant or a non-compete clause is to prevent PAs and doctors from taking patients from the practice. It typically states that you cannot practice within a certain distance for a certain amount of time. I'm going to be the first one to admit I signed a non-compete clause with both my employers, including the one I have now five years ago, and I really didn't think it was that big of a deal. In re 
reality, over the past year, some of our members have brought this issue up to SDPA leadership. And we actually adopted a policy statement on it that's on the SDPA website. And our House of Delegates representative, Kerry, is actually bringing it to the AAPA this year to have the AAPA adopt a similar policy that basically says non-compete clauses really harm the public. And as I, really, as I read that paper, I really agree they do. They basically put financial business interests of that practice ahead of public welfare. They take providers out of the community, whether it's you or another doctor. Let's face it, there is a dermatology shortage. And if you've signed a restrictive covenant that makes it so you can't practice dermatology in that area and you're not happy and some hospital says, hey, why don't you come just do pre-admission testing and you'll just, you know, you say, oh, that sounds like a not so stressful job. That healthcare provider with that medical dermatology expertise has now been stolen and removed from the community. And now patients have even less access to that expert specialty care. They also remove our ability to be advocates for our patients. And this is really where, let's say in a hospital system or a practice, it's scary to be a whistleblower. It's scary to point out fraudulent billing if you know you can't practice anywhere else in that county and you're gonna to have to leave your home. So again, it harms our patients because we can't properly be an advocate because we're worried about not being able to pay our bills. There's some states where restrictive covenants like Tennessee are absolutely illegal. It doesn't, it's not, you're not allowed to have them. Um, but those are a minority of states. I really think everyone should go look at that position paper and talk about it with your employer. You know, we all signed this Hippocratic Oath. We all or said it at one point, or we all sat in an interview for PA medical school and said, I just want to help people. So restrictive covenants don't help people. The only person they help are the financial interests of the practice. If you do sign a restrictive covenant or non-compete clause, it needs to specifically deal with one location, and that location needs to be where you see patients. Even if they don't have satellite offices now, it needs to say restrictive covenant is five miles from the office at 66 Clear Road, Pennsylvania, PA. Not the main office, not the exact physical address. If they move, change your contract, no big deal. The reason you want that is because, again, what happens if a hospital buys this up and they have satellite clinics and offices through the entire state? Does your restrictive covenant now apply to every five-mile radius that tenant healthcare or this big healthcare system has? Or you merge with, they merge with another practice, the doctors combine, now does this apply to the other practice? If this is a hard selling point, you can simply explain, look, you have a restrictive covenant because you're afraid I'm going to take patients. I'm only going to take patients if they've seen me, if they know me. If I've never gone to the office in Bumble, no one from Bumble is going to follow me. It's only the concern of the office here in Jackson. So this should be a point that you can really clearly explain. Make sure there's a reasonable limit. What have other doctors in this practice signed? Certainly if you're rural, it's going to be a little bit bigger than if you're urban. You should also state how long this restrictive covenant is in effect. To the end of time is not acceptable. One year, two year, three years at the most. You also should specifically state that you can practice in a different area of medicine within that restrictive covenant. And a lot of doctors don't think about that because a dermatologist can't go practice emergency medicine. 
So you would want to explain to them, look, if we're not a fit or you sell the practice someday and I decide to leave dermatology, I'm not going to take patients if I go work in the ER. I'm not going to be taking patients if I'm working in pre-admission testing. Nobody's going to go pre-admission testing for their Accutane right now. So you need to explain to them it's different. You need to have a specific line that says you can work in other areas of medicine that are not dermatology within that restrictive covenant. I'm also a big fan of considering a financial buyout, that there's just a dollar amount of $40,000 or $50,000 that you can buy out from your restrictive covenant. Some practices absolutely would make that part of a sign-on bonus to buy out your restrictive covenant if you agree to work for them for so many years. Or, as we see more and more PAs being owners in their practice, perhaps you and another doctor are going to be owners and that would be part of your startup loan, your small business loan. So I'm a big fan of having a financial buyout. Otherwise, you're just going to spend all that money, potentially both sides on lawyers, potentially fighting this restrictive covenant. You know, in the end, I have a lot, of pay, a lot of clients who will ask me, you know, will a restrictive covenant really hold up in a court of law? I don't know, but do you want to, to do that? Do you want to spend that time? Do you want to search for another job and have that employer know you're going to be maybe in a legal battle with a colleague in town? I think that's a hard sell. So if you're going to sign a restrictive covenant, you really need to make sure it's worded appropriately and that hopefully you don't have to challenge it in a court of law. So speaking of lawyers, some contracts will describe how disputes are handled. Some will say all disputes will be handled by arbitration. Realize that arbitration usually is less expensive. It usually is expedient, um, but the decision is binding. There's no appeals. Again, court hearings, they're longer, they cost more, but you can appeal a decision. Beware of contracts that assign all legal fees to you. I was offered a, a job at a practice and I read this contract and it was just horrible. I can't believe another PA had signed it. And there was a little, little line in there that said, um, regardless of outcome, if there's any legal dispute, the physician assistant will shoulder all legal expenses for practice NPA. And I point this out, I'm like, what is this? And even the doctor said, oh, gosh, wow. But, you know, I guess my lawyer just put that in there. And I'm like, well, your lawyer's looking out for your interest, so pat him on the back. But there's no way in hell I'm signing this. So beware. It should either stay, say nothing, which means that you'll either both handle your own legal expenses or the loser will handle all legal expenses or state it that last way I just said it. But you should not be responsible for all of it. I'm absolutely a big fan of this. The contract should also include a clause that allows you and your lawyer to access medical records if a lawsuit is brought against you after you leave the practice. Sadly, even if you leave on great terms, it may take a while for you to get access to these records. And although you'll eventually get them, you absolutely have a right to see them. Your, your native malpractice case, they absolutely eventually have to give you that medical record. Do you want to spend the expense of your lawyer getting a judge to say they have to share that medical record with you? And just the anxiety for those weeks or months it's going to take wondering, oh my God, did I document that right? What did I say? How many times did I see them? So this should just be in there in any practice that has a problem with this. That's a huge red flag. If you're on the discussion forum, which we're going to talk about in a minute, I see this question come up a lot. So I've had more of my clients include in their contract that it should state that they are going to have support staff, medical assistants or nurses that either are assigned to them daily or hired specifically to assist them. 
I'm also a big fan that you should be intricately involved with their hiring, their firing, and their raises. And actually, my last article in Practical Dermatology about PA productivity definitely hit on that point. Just to get a sense in this room, who thinks they need more support staff assigned to them daily? That, I mean, that's a good amount. So you need to learn how to convince your employer that it's better for them to get you more support staff. It can either start from day one saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a Derm PA, I'm going to start from day one, this is how much support staff, or you could say starting in three months, or you could also say once I have an average of so many patients per week, then a second or then a third or maybe a number, you know, number one will be assigned to me daily. So this, to avoid conflict, should be in there from the beginning. And in, in that last um, article I did, which you're welcome to email me about, about PA productivity, I specifically go over an example that shows how the addition of one medical assistant will give a practice easily five times return on that medical assistance investment. So you need to learn how to sell them on that as well. Um, I love the SDPA form. If you're not on there, you should go and at least be a lurker because this question comes up a lot and there's a lot of great responses in there. And again, that's the article I was just referring to. When you're doing your contract negotiations, you need to get a copy of the employee manual because anything that isn't specifically covered in your contract, it falls under the discretion of the employee manual. So if some you go to court about something and it didn't specify maternity leave, whatever's in their employee manual will then apply. So I was originally going to do this talk and not talk about compensation at all, but I thought there might be a lot of disappointment. So we're going to talk about compensation. There's generally two, and I'm going to say now three ways to be paid in the PA world, either salary or hourly. And I think the new emerging uh, trend, especially if you've had experience, you've been in it for a while, is going strict percentage of production. If you do go hourly, my advice is to make sure you put down the minimum number of hours you will be offered in that practice. I can't tell you the horror stories where um, the doctor is going through divorce and wants to make his practice look less profitable. He says, I'm sorry, I can only pay you to come in one day a week now. Or guess what, my daughter graduated from PA school. She's taking your Mondays and Tuesdays. Story after story. So if you're paid hourly, it better state your minimum amount of hours that you're offered. Most of us who have a salary are also given a production-based compensation structure. And I love that phrase more than the term bonus, although I'm going to use it interchangeably at this point because I think a lot of people call it a bonus. Why do I like that? I think the word bonus means you're getting a little special treat. You're getting an, a, a reward for being a little extra. Whereas your production-based compensation, you're entitled to that. That's part of your compensation package. So I think there's a subtle psychological difference there, and I really prefer the term production-based compensation. If you get a bonus or production-based compensation, your contract absolutely must state that you are given regular reports of billing and collection. And I would even go as far as to define what regular reports mean. My first practice was small. There was five employees, one office manager. My doctor only got his reports quarterly, so quarterly was fine. I'm at a big six-doctor practice with a huge staff. I get my reports monthly. 
So it should state. And your reports need to be more than just here's your collections. Because how do you know if they're accurate? And we're going to talk about billing and coding a little bit. I'm getting a little late here. So in order to be properly compensated, you need to know what you are worth. You need to know what you bring into the practice in terms of both billings and collections. And you also need to realize and bring it up during contract negotiations that you bring in more than just money to the practice. You decrease wait time, you free up the physician's time, you triage, you may oversee staff, you're the OSHA officer, you do interviews, you made patient brochures, you hired the esthetician. Every little thing that you did that didn't bring in money, you need to write down and review with them in that meeting because they will not remember it. You need to understand billings and collections if you want to have any part of your salary based on your production. You know, billing and coding is more than just deciding what the right level visit is. You need to learn how your staff submits claims. How do they handle rejected claims? How do they handle balances for patients? I had a client once and she showed me what she was billing and she showed me what she was collecting and it was a huge disparity. She was only collecting like 40% of what she was billing. To make a long story short, the billing manager was the doctor's cousin who felt like the doctor was doing good enough and she would just write off every rejection and every deductible and every patient who ever called in. Well, that PA wasn't doing well enough to justify that for her patients, and that's her decision to give away free health care, not the billing manager. So you need to know how your office handles these co-pays, these deductibles, and also patients who forget to check out, which is a big thing in my practice just recently where one of my doctors realized one of his Botox patients basically was forgetting to check out every other Botox treatment and would just call in to make her next appointment. So we were not reconciling who checks in and who checks out at the end of the day is that number equal. How many practices, how many of us know if our practice even does that? So a pretty small amount. Your, your patient leaves, that, that patient without insurance that you, you know, realized it was contact derm and they're thinking I can get either innocently or not so innocently, walk out without ever having to pay. You just provided completely free service. You, get, you need to get to know your billing staff. You need to be friends with them. You need to know when their daughter's graduating from college. You need to be seen as helpful to them. Not, I'm looking over your shoulder, but hey, be my buddy. Let me help you on this. I know it's complicated. Oh, you have such a hard job. Let's do it together. Also, you should do internal audits, particularly for Medicare. And this doesn't have to be like a crazy audit the way they talk about chart audits and scary Medicare audits. Basically, every once in a while, I write down the name of a Medicare patient that I either wanted billed under myself or I wanted billed incident to under my doctors. And two weeks later, I go to billing staff and I say, pull up the accounts receivable. Oh, great, we got paid for that. Show me whose column that went into. And I'll do that periodically once every six months just to make sure everything's going along the same road. So common formula is to get a base salary plus a percentage of collections over a certain threshold. What's that threshold? Well, number one, it needs to be reasonable and attainable. If you're never going to hit it or you're barely going to hit it, it's just a source of frustration. It's not actually something you're going to strive for. I tell practices to set that at the PA's total direct cost to the practice. So your malpractice insurance, your salary, the medical assistant who only works for you. Basically, let's pretend you died tomorrow. What expenses would go away for the practice? Would the rent go down if you died tomorrow? No. 
Would they fire the office manager? No. Would the electricity bill go down? No. So these are, would they pay less on their laser lease? No. So these are not things that should be put into that bonus threshold. I'm a big believer it needs to be a firm dollar amount in your contract. Avoid that term collections minus costs. Because you're going to find out when push comes to shove, that practice puts a lot of costs like rent and electricity that, are that they're attributing to you that really is not fair. I also want to avoid that arbitrary multiplier of the base. I hate that. That's long time old school thinking to say your bonus threshold is two times or three times your base. Why? That makes no sense. Would your supervising doctor or would you give benzoclin to a patient because you heard it was good at a conference? No. We go, oh, it's an antibiotic with a benzoyl peroxide, decreases resistance. Have logic behind what this bonus threshold is. The one disadvantage of this formula is it is dependent on how good your accounts receivable is. So you could be super PA in there, 80 hours a week, billing one fours, four threes, I mean high grade coder. If they're not getting your money, they're not putting modifiers on, they're not handling rejected claims, they're not following up with patients for balances, it doesn't matter how much you're billing. So what do you do if you can't get the data? What do you do if you ask for this? Number one, if it's a new employer and they say to you they won't share that information, in my opinion, that'd be a no-go. There's a great article from Inga Elzey in this last JDPA that I, I love this quote. I had to put in there word for word. If an employer does not want to share this information, whether or not you get a production bonus, you have a responsibility to yourself, your license, your reputation to monitor the billings and services performed by you and under your name. If you can't get that data, we could have a whole hour lecture about how to base that information off of patients that were seen per day or take a random sample. The real question you have to ask yourself is really, is this the right practice to be in if they won't share that information with you? So we're going to talk a little bit about salary survey and averages. So in 2004, we have two STPA surveys to talk about that are applicable. 2004 survey, we asked what are the biggest frustrations in your job? And here we come back to negotiations. Salary, bonus, benefits. It's difficult for all of us. 51% of respondents who said they were looking for another job noted compensation as a reason. So obviously it's important. We did another survey in 2007, and sadly, it cost the society $10,000. And that's really what it costs to do a blinded survey so that Sharon doesn't have to worry that I'm going to now know what she's making, so that it really can be tabulated in a blind way so that we're not able to manipulate the data, but that this outside group does it. It was sent to 1,800 PAs, and sadly, only 33% responded. Who responded? In my experience, the people that were low paid and unhappy. The PAs I know that are making good money said, oh, I got it, but it was long and I just didn't fill it out. Out of those who responded, 82% receive a base pay. The rest have income levels that vary from month to month. Average pay was between 70 and 100. With more experience, three to five years of experience, the average went up. With more than six years experience, the average base salary was greater than $100,000. 70% 70, 70 of PAs receive a bonus. The majority is based on the PAs collections. And we can a whole lecture about different ways to do your bonus. And the mean threshold was 169,300. The majority of respondents did not know their collections. Very sad. Mean CME budget and some vacation data is on there. 
Having given you all those averages, I want to tell you the biggest mistake that you can make when negotiating your contract is to tell your employer, I'm just average. I just want to be paid average. Imagine you did that to get into PA school. I want to get into PA school because I'm average. Hey, come in. I'll give you your health care. I provide about average quality health care. You don't want to be average. I also want to stress that you need to protect the colleagues that do share this information with you. And there's a post on the forum that really got my blood boiling where a local PA said, this is what I make. That PA went back to their employer with this average philosophy and said, Jane down the street is making this money. And Jane's employer got a call from that doctor. Why are you paying them this much? So if, someone, if another PA shares with you their compensation, especially if they're local with you, do not name their name when you're talking to your employer. That is really poor form to our colleagues. It's also poor form to basically use that as your rationale, that this is what the average PA makes out there, and so that's what I want to make. If your doctor, and my doctors did this during our contract negotiations, oh, well, the PAs down the street make this, or this is the national average. And then I said, that's about the average PA out there. Hopefully, you've seen me take care of patients, and you know I provide above average health care. This is about you and me and how much you value me at the practice. So bring it back to the two of you. There's great advice on the forum. I actually quoted some um, individuals who I don't think are at this meeting. Jason Roddick just put about three posts on the forum I absolutely love. I wish I could get him to write a book about it. So I quoted it. Proper negotiation of a contract will dictate that you sell the SP on what he or she will gain from the contract. Do not emphasize what you will make. The key to setting up a successful contract is one in which the SP feels that there's a good return on their investment, all the while you feel that there's a fair stake in the value at the practice. Paul Maven, or is Paul here? Okay, I emailed him last week, so I was gonna quote him too. There was a person on the forum who said, you know, I see about 10 patients a day, this is how much, you know, how much do you think I should be making? And Paul pointed out, you know, if you only see 10 patients a day at about $100 a visit times about 48 weeks, that's about 240 in billing, and, you know, let's say you don't collect everything you built, do about 70%, there's really only $168,000 being brought in the practice from your services. And depending on your salary, that may not leave a whole lot of profit left for that physician. You need to know if you're making a profit for that physician by getting your collections and your billings regularly. Some doctors are going to be okay with not making much or any profit. They're just so happy to have you there, to have someone to run the office when they go on vacation, to have someone to help with staffing, to have a female that their patients can see. So some will be okay with that, but you need to go in, into that eyes wide open. Let's take another PA who sees 32 patients per day, which is actually less than what I see per day. I also work with two dedicated medical assistants all day long in three exam rooms. If they see 32 patients based on Paul's formula, that PA would collect $768,000 for the practice. Now why should that PA make the same as that PA who only sees 10 patients a day? So that is why these averages, what's the average PA? It does not matter. Your salary needs to be about you, about what services you provide, about what you bring to the practice. General rules for negotiation, never say the percentage or income that you're gonna keep. I gave an example there, so we're running out of time. Negotiate always with the owner, never the office manager. Basically, what did other physicians, possible partners or moonlighting doctors, who did they negotiate with? If they negotiated with the doctor, you should negotiate with the doctor. 
set aside time, doctor owner only. So if there's other employees, a new partner, you do your negotiations with the owner of the practice only. You decide what you can't compromise on, what are deal breakers, always be professional, always thank them, don't burn bridges, realize there's things that they're not going to be able to budge on either. If you truly have a deal breaker, which should not be many, use that term. This is a deal breaker for me. I cannot go forward with this. So be clear about it. Again, in the end, you can always reject the offer. You can always leave the practice. I don't care how mad you are, how much you want to tell them what you think. Nine times out of ten, that's just going to come burn you in the butt. Put a smile on your face, a two-sentence letter about why you're leaving that practice. Don't get into big, long diatribes. There's a right and a wrong way to leave a job. Contract renewals, you want to start 60 to 90 days before your contract would expire. As a general rule of thumb, if the contract says that you must give 60 or 90 days notice, that's a general good thumb of where to negotiate. Two weeks is absolutely not acceptable. I can't tell you how many clients I actually turn away who will contact me and say, in two weeks I'm doing my contract negotiations. Can, I help? Can you hire me? Can you help you? And I'll say, you know, I'm just I'm too busy right now. Two weeks is not enough time. You should have started this months ago. The devil is an email. Basically, do not have any part of your contract negotiation happen over email. People are brave. People are rude over email on the internet. They'll say things they would never have the gall to say to your face. So only use email to set up a time for a meeting. If you get details of your contract in an email, your response should be, I'd like to go over you, I'd like to go over this with you in person. Are you available this specific time or this specific time? And then verbally go over what they put in that email with you. So in summary, I'm sorry I went a little long there because I wanted to allow a little time before the next speaker for questions. Get a lawyer to look over it. Look at things with a pessimistic eye. Know what you are worth. Stop treating yourself like your average and seeking out that average information and contracts. Every person in this room needs to have one. So is there any questions? I know we're running sort of tight. Come to the mic if there's questions. Where's Christine? Yeah, good on the mic. Hi, if you are um, included in your in employer's malpractice as a practice employee and it's a claims made policy, are you still required to purchase a tail if you are to leave? Yes. Correct. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, hi. Um, I was just wondering, um, I'm kind of new to dermatology and this whole billing thing now. Um, my, I approached my, my employer about, you know, wanting to know what I was worth by seeing what she's billing for me, what the receipts coming, receivables coming, and so forth. And she out and out refused. So my, my confusion about this is if they're billing under my name, I'm the provider, has my name all over it, don't I have any legal right to see any of this? Is there a legal right? Basically, no. Um, and even if there was, you know, would you stay employed there if you sued your employer and forced her hand to show it to you? Would that be a fun working environment? So, no. <laughs> um, I do think that brings up an important issue is how do you ask for that information? And you don't want to ask, oh, I want to know how much I'm making or my, my contract is up. I always start out, A, get to know your billing people. 
So I'm friends with them. I know when their kids graduate. I know which ones like chocolate and which ones like taffy from the beach. So I'm their buddy. That's number one. And then number two, again, remember, you know, Jason and Paul in those posts were talking about selling your doctor. I would approach it as I want to be involved with billing and coding because I want to make sure that you're getting as much as you deserve at this practice. I want to help the billing department handle bundled services and rejected claims. I want to help you decide what contracts we should participate with through insurance companies. And I want to make sure that we're handling Medicare appropriately so doctor, you don't get fined for Medicare fraud. What well, I just want to help you. I just want to help you as a doctor. I just want to help the billing department. And by the way, I'll get to find out what I'm worth and use that during my contract negotiations. Don't say that last sentence. Questions? Going once? Okay. Um, do you have any uh, data on what average collections should be in a good practice? 60%, 40%, 70%? Um, you know, what we build again, and collect. all over in terms of, you know, billings, I hope I'm not going to um, embarrass Robert here, but when Robert tells me what he bills, I mean, I just think I look pathetic. Like, I can never introduce Robert to my doctors because they'll fire me and hire him. In terms of percentages, though, what percent of your billings should be collected, it varies a little bit based on your practice. But there's a great Inga Elsie article that's on the members-only section of the website talking about how to figure it out. I'd say 70 to 80 to even 90% is good. Anything less than 70, there's a problem. My billing ladies are really so good, I'm about like 92%. So, but I mean, I, I, you know, I give my billing staff Christmas gifts from me out of my money every year. Good. Do I have to get it? Are we done? All right, so thank you very much, and I hope you enjoyed it.